0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, you can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows, and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you. The Tim Hill Podcasts
1: ordinary people's extraordinary stories.
0: Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to have a chat with Dom. Dom, you're in the room. So, Dom. If you could tell me when and where you were born, if you can describe to me what it was like, where you grew up, the schools you went to, and the education that you received.
1: Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I grew up in uh, Spokane, Washington, so uh, climate probably not not far off of where you guys are there in uh, England, uh, Washington State, so... About three hundred days a year of clouds and, and fog and, and rain and everything's green and big trees. Um, grew up out in the countryside, um, so I was uh, introduced to uh, tree forts. And uh, I think the first the first week that I had my uh, that I had my BB gun, I I just went I went to town on all of the, uh, the different birds and squirrels and and you name it. Uh, out in our neighborhood, my um, educational background is not um, it's not what I would call standard at all. I was uh, I was private schooled, private tutored, homeschooled, public schooled. Um, I went to private and public colleges and then I've gotten anything from a couple of uh, two year degrees to an undergrad four year degree from a uh, flight school Embry Riddle a uh, master's degree from Embry-Riddle. And then last year, about this time, I finished another master's level uh, degree. So I've seen a, a, a different, um, yeah, just kind of a different uh, view on on learning. Everything from z- no structure to very rigid structure to um, the the structure that I personally liked the most was in college where I got to... Establish my own schedule and, mm. you know, kind of drive and, and and go as fast or as slow as, as, as I wanted there.
0: Wow. Well, let's take it back a little bit then. Let's start off. Um, can you remember much about kindergarten? Did I you go can kindergarten?
1: because in kindergarten, I went to a private school and um, it was very structured and uh, I remember enjoying it. Um, for the most part, and I was a pretty shy kid, um, believe it or not, mm-hmm. even as a you know a lot of people that shocks when I tell them that, but as a fighter pilot i didn 't grow up as a um, well some people erroneously think fighter pilots are all arrogant and and cocky and uh, <laughs> um, unfortunately, I wish I could say that I never was, but um I would say that the majority are not. And you probably have just maybe run into the wrong guy or you've watched the wrong movie that's portrayed those attitudes. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so, kindergarten, so that, kindergarten was uh was a lot of fun. It was very, very structured. It, yeah. was a, it was a private school, it was small.
0: So so that old adage then that um how can you tell that you're in a room with a fighter pilot is <laughs> not overly true then. <laughs> <laughs> because i'll tell you
1: the common thing is uh what do they say if uh how do you know a fighter pilot's um done talking about himself um he he starts talking about his airplane or something along those
0: lines (laughs) (laughs) a little bit of truth so it's not like in the movies then (laughs) yeah yeah i mean kindergarten private school so is that sort of Privately educated, so that the, your parents paid for you to go there,
1: yes. As far as I know, uh, they were it was a you had to pay to go to that school, yep.
0: Mm. So, did you have a like a school uniform and that, and um, yeah, regimented,
1: had, yeah, pants and and black shoes, and the the tie and the sweater, and the whole the whole bit,
0: excellent. So what age did that take you up to kindergarten or, or Hmm. the private school? Yeah. The kindergarten side of the private school.
1: Yeah. I mean the, the, the private school I went on and off, um, all the way through, um, eighth grade. So kindergarten first through eighth, it was on and off between, um, homeschooling, um, and doing a private, um, not a private, that's the wrong word, but like doing a, a, a formal syllabus at home um, that we would work on, you know, and there was, there was, I think there was even another private school we went to for one of the years uh, in there all the way up through eighth grade.
0: Hmm. But was there a reason for that, that um, you was in and out of sort of homeschooling and a private school? Because uh, what was your parents thinking about all of that?
1: you know i i don't know if they um i think they wanted a little bit more control on what we were learning um i think there's um, a decent amount of fear uh behind what the public schools in the area were were teaching um and you know we we grew up with a very uh christian background so i think they wanted to make sure that the fundamentals of the christian faith were you know being more or less uh built up as we were uh young kids
0: all right what sort of christian faith was that i'm
1: um, catholic
0: yeah all right they old spectacles testicles while it much gang <laughs> yes oh, I, know the sort. <laughs> I know the story i know it's done i've seen it <laughs> yeah i've seen it in the movies yeah um so they're, they're fairly rigid on that then
1: um, you know, I it didn't feel that way to me. Um, you know, granted as as I grew up in regards to uh my spirituality and Christian faith and 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 Catholicism even. I de- I, w- I wish I could say that I never left, but that wouldn't be true. I mean, I ended up joining the military, the Air Force a number of years ago is where I kind of um it started exploring like all the different religions and I had some stuff from the past that, you know, I wanted to get answered and maybe it was just an excuse mm. for me to not go to church for some time. But um, about two years ago, I had um, what one might call like a, uh, a reversion back to Catholicism, um, back to the Christian faith. And um, holy smokes, it's changed a lot in our in our life, um, in our lives. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm married. I got four kids. And it's really been um, a stabilizing factor just because it, it takes the focus off of, of like just searching out uh, all of the different things that you want every single day, the comforts, right? And it gives you some purpose uh, to your life. It gives you the ability to kind of look at life through a different lens and, and reach out and help people and uh, do that kind of stuff.
0: Hmm. So up to eighth grade then, you You were private and publicly or public and private and home schooled yes, so what happened after eighth grade? Did you go to a, a public school or a private school? No,
1: so what ended up happening was in ninth and tenth grade um freshman and sophomore year, so ninth and tenth grade of school um my dad actually hired a private tutor to come in. And we actually, we had a pretty big home out in the country. So in the uh, the lower part of the house, we had renovated a big room and kind of made it a, a classroom of sorts. And so during ninth and 10th grade, I think it was about three days a week, a private tutor would come in and she would just do one-on-one tutoring with our, you know, because at that point we had homeschooling in a traditional sense. Uh, when you start learning, you know, algebra and calculus and some of the the more difficult subjects. If you're not trained in those, I would imagine that it's probably pretty difficult to teach those at a, at a level, um, you know, acceptable for, for those different grades. So in ninth and 10th grade, we had a private tutor um, come in and she was actually, I think she was a principal of a school. So she had a a educational background and it was, it was actually pretty cool because my uh, uncle was a ski instructor at the local downhill ski mountain. And, at fourteen he got me a job as a ski instructor so I on the days where you know I, I was able to either get my homework done or or what have you I got I, I would ski probably about sixty days a year uh, in the winter time I'm um, just going to the local ski hill and and giving skiing ski downhill ski lessons and then I would do my homework on the side and and, and that happened you know like I said through ninth and tenth grade and by eleventh um, grade I had tested into the, um, a program at the local community college. So, um, I was, I wasn't even 16 at this point, but I had tested in to start college, um, at 16 with my friend that I went to private school, uh, with, um, for a number of years. So that's kind of where things get a little bit messy because we ended up moving as a family. So I had tested into the college. I got accepted to the college to start college as well as high school. So the last two years of high school, last two years of college, and I could graduate with a high school degree or a high school diploma and also graduate with a two year degree. Um, Mm -hmm. and then we moved to Tucson, Arizona. And when we got there, um, you know, we got our, our life and everything kind of set up there. And I, I was playing a lot of baseball at this point and, I just, I don't know. I think, I, I don't know if I was just frustrated that I had set everything up uh, when, when we lived in Washington state. Um, but what I ended up doing was I got, I went and tested and got a high school equivalent diploma uh, just after I turned 16. And I just started college at, at 16. Um, mm. So I just, I basically skipped the last two years of high school. Um, and I think part of Part of being able to do that is I would, I would been private tutored for two years. So I had very, uh, focused attention on the different subject matter. And I was also very driven. It's kind of a quiet, a little bit quieter, uh, individual, but I was, I was very driven to, to do well and to, um, to get into aviation. And I knew that if I was going to do anything flying related, I had to, you know, Keep my keep my face in the books and learn, and you know, stay away from drugs and do all that kind of stuff that hopefully would set me up for success in the future.
0: Wow! So let's just take you back a little bit. Let's let's explore um, your skiing. I mean, I'm a big skier myself. I've, I'm, a, I'm a telemark skier, and okay. also I was a, a Nordic ski instructor, so I've done the the, the Nordic discipline as well. of um, of classic and skate um, but my passion was telemark and i've competed at that at the british telemark championships wow. for quite a few years and i was on the army telemark team that took on the navy um, wow. way back uh, it was the first army team to go to the to the navy championships and take the navy on at their own game uh, which is Royal marines normally um, we are up against them, we, we held our own and we actually won the competition, but they wouldn't let us have the prize, which, <laughs> was, which was a trophy, which was quite a laugh. And then the following year, the army set up um, the British Telemark Championships and, and run it for, well they still run it, um, it used to be in Rauis in Austria, um, but then they moved to a place in in France called um, PL uh, PLV. Okay. So I did that for quite a bit of time, so you i guess you're just a, a downhill skier um did you dabble with telemark at all
1: so i think probably the closest we got to that was was the nordic cross country we called it cross country skiing but yeah the nordic skiing mm-hmm. but i didn't I'm trying to remember i don't think i've ever if i've tried uh telemarking it was maybe one time um but for the most part it was uh it was downhill skiing um which which actually kind of um, was cool to have those skills and to, to grow up teaching and to, um, you know, kind of be in that space because when, when I eventually, you know, I've, I've skied in the the Southern parts of, of Canada. Um, there's just some just amazing terrain and, and powder up there. But then when we moved to mm. Japan, when I was in the military, they had 20 miles from our house, um, some of the best backcountry powder skiing in Northern Japan, um, that I've, that I've been able to ski. I mean, we're talking, you, you ski in the morning and at lunch you go in and an hour later there's six new inches of, of powder. And you know, it's, there's, there's no, uh, that, that hill specifically had very few, uh, groomed or on pissed runs. Um, most of it was just, uh, at your own risk, go out and the, the gondola <laughs> drops you off at the top and you, you can ski with a beacon and and some, some rescue gear. But for the most part, you just uh, go out and and just, oh, my gosh, it's just the smile, the smiles on your face when you're going through just uh, it looks like powdered sugar.
0: <laughs> that sounds awesome. I, I mean, I was going tell you about uh, and ski powder in Telemark as well, and um, yeah, I, I quite enjoy powder. But I was in um, Chamonix in France at uh, this one time, and I went up onto the what they call a the Grand Monte and it was a powder morning. And it, when it, it, I mean, saw sort of lunchtime, it was it was all shredded out. But yeah. I, I spent half, half the morning <laughs> face planting and digging myself out. Yeah, <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> just one yeah, of those I just mean, couldn't get it right.
1: <laughs> that was something that I struggled with a little bit, um, going from, you know, Washington state where it was, it was okay. The snow quality was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't the type of, we didn't get the powder skiing that, you know, Southern Canada would get. And we definitely didn't get the same type of weather patterns that would bring the, you know, the, the water in off of the ocean, you know, just off the Mm. eastern coast of Russia and just come whipping across northern Japan. And it would just dump uh, Mm. there. I mean, you wake up in the morning and there'd be several feet of snow on the ground. Driving to the mountain, there were uh, tunnels that you would drive through just to get there because the walls of snow were, you know, 12, Mm. 15, 20 feet tall. So pretty cool.
0: Outrageous. Yeah. One day, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So you you moved to Arizona. Mm hmm. Total change in weather. <laughs> there's no skiing to be had there, is there? <laughs>
1: um, I mean there's there are ski hills in Arizona. They're uh, they're definitely not everywhere. I mean, but there's there's mm-hmm. I think at least three ski hills uh in Arizona and um if not more. And a lot of them make their own snow, um, Mm. but they also get natural snow as well. But it's nothing like Colorado or some of the other, uh, you know, the states that do get a lot of snow. It's nothing like that. But Mm. I mean, I have, I have, uh, so I wanted to do what I called the the trifecta when I was a civilian flight instructor is that I flew one day and then, I went skiing in the late morning, and then I came back, and I went golfing in the afternoon, uh, all in one day, just to <laughs> just to say that I did just it. Right? You can. Yeah. pretty ridiculous, but um, <laughs> yeah, I got the trifecta
0: done. Yeah, I guess they they could kind of do that in um, in Cyprus, where you can snow ski in the morning up on the Trudos Mountains, uh, and then come down. And then you can water ski in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, your, your college course when you got down to Arizona, what was uh, what was the course that you did?
1: Yep. So my um, so I I thought that if I've always wanted to fly airplanes, um, you know, as a little kid, we grew up on a final approach for a military base. At seven years old, my dad helped me build a. A fighter jet model at twelve years old, my uncle, who was also a mechanic with Alaska Airlines, he brought me to the flight deck and they were doing engine runs, so all the mechanics are up there, and they 've got the engines going, so I, I had gotten the bug to fly and my because there 's no pilots in my family, uh, I thought my quickest way to do that um, just because flying lessons were expensive would be to uh, enroll and become. Uh, an aircraft mechanic because my uncle had done that. And he's like, if you're an aircraft mechanic you're going to be around pilots and you'll figure it out from there and you'll figure out how to get flying. So, uh, I go to the, the, the community college that I had enrolled in and I was looking in there, you know, I was, I was enrolling in their, uh, mechanics program. And one of the ladies sitting behind the desk, she's, I was like, you know, I just kind of mentioned something about flying, and she's like, "Well, this is the last flyer that I have," and she handed me a flyer, and it was for a flight school in Tucson, Arizona. And as luck would have it, uh, my dad went down there, and we talked to the uh, the chief pilot together. And kind of the rest is history. I do I do remember vividly that the the chief pilot was kind of giving my my dad the rundown on the syllabus and you know what we'd be learning uh in flight school and all that kind of stuff and when he had mentioned the the dollar amount that was required um i thought that my my dreams had been shot <laughs> at that point because it was also just i mean it was just an unfathomable amount of money um because i was 16 mm. i didn't have any money to my name um but i wasn't about to give up and I, and I think that was kind of the, the door that opened for me um, and I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew I was going to. So I, I enrolled in a two-year course of study that was called that was called the Professional Pilot Program. And you would graduate with a two-year degree as well as a commercial pilot's license. Um, and then I took all of all of those credits and I transferred them into um, a four-year uh, college with uh, Embry-Riddle. They're a, a pretty um, big flight school, civilian flight school here in the United States. Hmm. So I had just started, you know, in the, pro- the professional pilot program and went th- through that for a couple of years. And then um, I wanted to give myself an opportunity to join uh, the air force or another service to be a pilot and specifically a fighter pilot. And in order to do that, in order to be an officer, you had to have an undergraduate degree. So a four-year degree. So hmm. I, I opted to take that route and, and I figured it wouldn't hurt me. If anything, uh, I would just end up being a a commercial airline pilot, um, which I was also, uh, really happy to do.
0: So did you manage to complete the course before joining the air force? Yes. uh, I, what, what, what was the, 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 the rationale and the planning beyond that and, and how did it actually pan out?
1: So I actually had, um, I knew I wanted to fly airplanes and I, I just, I just knew that if I just kept flying airplanes, I would, I'm, I'm kind of a action. Uh, I have an, an action-based mindset. So I just start doing things and I kind of, a lot of people sit back and they try to figure things out. I'm, I'm more of a, Hey, I kind of want to go in this direction and I start, I start moving. And it also doesn't bother me to um, maybe switch paths halfway through something, but at least I've learned something and I'm kind of moving in the direction that I want to go. So that was kind of the, the, the genesis behind it is I, I knew I want to fl- fly airplanes. I knew I wanted to be at least a commercial pilot, commercial airline pilot. And so I was just immersing myself in my degree and my studies and specifically my flying um, while I was doing that. So I was actually working. I didn't have very much money. So I was working three jobs, um, at once, and and it was it was nice to drop one of those jobs when I got hired at eight, 18 years old to be a civilian flight instructor. So I I replaced a job that wasn't serving me uh, that well, and I filled it with um, a civilian flight instructor job. Uh, and so I got to I got to teach people how to fly at 18, which I don't know a lot of people that do that. Um, and it really helped me learn. It helped me learn a lot of the concepts I learned a lot when I'm teaching, you know, that's how I learned how to ski really well was, was through teaching and just practicing. And, you know, even as a, uh, fighter pilot instructor now, um, I, I learn, I learn a ton when I'm, when I'm teaching people how to do stuff. So I think that was kind of the big thing is I, I went, I knew that I wanted to be the airline pilot at a minimum. And I just, I went, I went all out. I was working three jobs. I was taking double and triple class loads, and I graduated with my undergraduate four-year degree at 19, and I had been teaching people how to fly airplanes um, for about just under two years at that point. So at before I even turned 20, I had my college done. I was a civilian flight instructor, and then I just kind of took a year to a year and a half to teach people how to fly and you know, take some trips with my friends and and uh, at that time too, I put an application in uh, for the military. Uh, prior to that,
0: so while you were teaching, then I guess were, were you getting paid to do that at the same yes. time, or, or was it? Is it the state sort of um, allowed you some extra time uh, in lieu to to be able to go and fly? on your own time as such or or is it yeah it was a they, it was they a paid you to definitely. teach
1: yeah it was, a, it was a it was a civilian uh flight school um that i had uh interviewed and i'd actually gone through my training with that college so i knew a lot of the instructors i knew the chief pilot they knew that i was fairly driven and that i i was there for a reason i was there for i meant business I was also really young and i think some guys come into aviation with um they've got a few more hurdles in front of them that i didn't i wasn't married i didn't have kids um you know i I didn't i wasn't worried about paying a mortgage i did you know i paid rent but there were a lot of things that you know had i been 25 years old 30 years old i would have you know i'm not saying that it's impossible by any stretch anybody can do it but like Mm -hmm. you there would just been a lot more hurdles that I would have had to take on. Whereas I was (laughs) young and didn't know any better. And I just worked, I was just a workaholic and I just kind of immersed myself into, uh, you know, aviation and I, and I loved it. And so I got hired by the college. So there was a, a syllabus and the students were showing up to go through the same program, the same, uh, program of training that I already had gone through. Um, Hmm. And I got paid for it, which was even which was even better and then and then there were also i don't remember like i think once a month the chief instructor let us go fly the airplane for our own training, or he he, he would let us fly the airplane um where we wouldn't get paid for it, but he he also wouldn't charge us to go fly uh the airplane, so mm-hmm. we could you know log a little bit more time and maybe go fly without having to Worry about teaching and you know, because there's a decent amount of work that goes into that, right? And you know that, yeah. like you're it's not babysitting, but you are, uh, yeah, you have to watch the other person to make sure that they're not going to kill you,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, it, can, it, can, it can go awfully wrong from yeah. a great height, <laughs> yeah. So, so what happened when you graduated from there, then?
1: So I graduated with my four year degree and that allowed me to put an application in, um, to one of the, uh, us military commissioning services to become an officer. And so there's, there's the academies. So, um, you know, the air force Academy West point, and there's a couple others that are, I'm drawing a blank on, but there's the Academy route. The problem with that is that when you go to an Academy, you are starting on day one. So you have to you know, I had actually looked into that at year three in college, and I found out that they were going to make me start my degree over. And I just, I don't know, I just wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't willing mm. to forfeit three years of, of work um, just to say that I went to the academy. So that, that route was out for me. I think had I graduated high school and known about it, that might've been an option. Um, the other option is to go through uh, reserve officer training Corps ROTC, while you're in college. I don't know if that's just uh, specific. Do you know if that's just specific to the U.S. or do, do they have that another?
0: No, no, we 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 have uh, UOTC over here, University Officer Training. Yeah, and it's so same it's, thing. It's a so, similar thing. It, it it is a. It doesn't guarantee you getting in, but it gives you uh, a grounding in in the military to be able to um, have a really good understanding. You get paid to do it, um, and it 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 qualifies you to get. A rank, easier okay. once you once you graduate, if that makes yeah. sense uh, as a reserve. Um,
1: yeah, it 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 does make sense, and I think that um, I did not go through ROTC, so I can't speak very intelligently to it. But I I do remember being done with my third year of college, and I I think there was a requirement to do at least two years of ROTC. Don't quote me on that, but there was a reason why I didn't I didn't pursue ROTC. So I, I essentially just graduated. Um, I had a lot of college debt that I was, um, you know, working to make the minimum payments on because I was still pretty uh, young and broke. And so I um, applied to officer training school, OTS, or some, some people call it, you know, the the Marines, I think in the Navy call it OCS. So you can apply to go through that school. And that's more the more or less the military's way of of backfilling a lot of spots that they can't fill either with the service academies or through ROTC, so it's probably the smallest chunk of mm-hmm. um, officers are OTS graduates like myself. And I'm not saying that I'm a special or anything. It just there's just not very many that make it through that program because uh, the the selection process is pretty long. I mean, the the recruiter lost my paperwork three times, and. Um, I had been driving from Tucson, Arizona to Phoenix in a car without air conditioning through the desert. Um, You know, I didn't have very much money. So it it was tough. It was tough to hear that, oh, that recruiter lost your paperwork or you have to start over. And, you know, being young and driven, I wasn't Mm -hmm. willing to take that as a, you know, no for an answer. So I just kept at it. And um, by the time I think you have to be 21 years old in order to commission as an officer. So I wasn't even old enough, but I was applying prior to being 21 and I had gotten a softer, a soft job offer from um, a small commuter airline. At the same time, I received a uh, an offer to go through OTS um, to fly um, jets in the military. And that was the only way, Um, you know, the recruiter actually had, had told me that you have to, you have to rank what you want in order of preference if you're, if you're going in the military. And I remember, look, I I was this 19 or 20 year old punk kid. And I I remember like it was yesterday because I'd worked so hard by the time I was 20 to even get where I was. And I looked at the recruiter and I said, if, if you don't give me a pilot slot, I'm not joining the military. I'm not joining the air force with, you know, at that time you know, over 20 years ago, I had, you know, 70 plus thousand dollars in debt and I was 19, 20 years old. So I had a lot of debt and I wanted to fly airplanes, which meant that, you know, I might go down the airline route. And I, and he's like, you, you have to list at least the top three. So I put pilot, pilot, and pilot. And he told me I couldn't do that. And I looked at him again and I was like, I told you, I'm not going to go into the military if if you don't give me a pilot slot And I, and I know, so now you, you'd have to go through officer training and obviously pass the programs. Mm -hmm. It's not a guarantee that's going to make you a pilot, but, um, on my paperwork, when I joined, it was to go through pilot training, which was Mm -hmm. the only way that I was going to go at that point because I was so driven to, to fly airplanes.
0: And that happened, I guess. What's that? That happened. So yeah, you got the you got the the gig.
1: Yep. So, went through officer training, which uh, I was not really prepared for, um, but it it broke me down and taught me a little bit about myself. And then uh, I ended up going through flight school, and and in flight school you have to compete um, to to get certain aircraft, so that you know the higher you rank in your class. Um, the better chances are that when you request to fly a certain airplane that you'll get it. Um, so I went through pilot training, and uh, a number of years later, I found myself sitting in a, a single-seat fighter jet, um, flying fighter
0: jet, and the rest is history. Uh-huh. So, right. Aircraft types. Sure. What was the first military aircraft you flew?
1: Well, so the first, I don't know if it really counts because they put students through a screening program and it's called a DA 20. It's a diamond built aircraft. So it's a civilian built aircraft and it is, there may be four seats in it, but it's really only built for two people. And it's, it's really just to determine if you're going to, if you're going to get sick motion sickness. If you're going to be able, if you have any sort of flying aptitude. So I don't know if I would really, that was the, the, the air, uh, the air force owned those airplanes. They owned the program, but they were civilian built. So I don't know if I really consider that the first military aircraft. I'd say the first one was, it's called a T six. It's a, uh, a tandem seat. So front to back two seat, um, propeller driven. So it's a turboprop. So it's got a, a, uh, a jet engine on it with a propeller on the front and it's a Pilatus Pilatus builds them um, mm. it's an incredible little airplane it's got, it's got a lot of power and it's pressurized and it's fully aerobatic so um, I went from flying airplanes that our maximum speed was probably I don't know maybe 180 miles an hour um, don't ask me to, to convert that <laughs> kilometers per hour um, i d- two do you an miles an hour, you're fine. Yeah, so the, to give you an idea, going from 180 miles per hour to um, the cruising speed of nearly 300 miles an hour. So overnight, we went from, you know, airplanes that were flying 100 to 120, maybe 150 miles an hour to two and a half to three times as fast. And it's fully aerobatic. Um, so, you, you know, it, it puts a lot of pressure on your body, um, if you're not ready for it and, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, it was called the T six Texan and it's mm-hmm. got ejection seats in it. Um, it's a, it was a great little airplane. I, I really enjoyed flying it.
0: And, and do you use one of these suits that that blows up and uh, yeah. that does all that, um, equalizing your blood pressure?
1: Yeah, it's called a G suit and it, it, um, mm-hmm. it assists your, what we call an anti G straining maneuver, um, to prevent yourself from passing out. Um, cause if you just sit there and you, and you pull back on the stick and you, and you have all of those forces on your body, all those G's you're going to pass out. So you have to, you have to, you have to basically do an anti G straining maneuver, which looks and sounds really funny. Um, if you're to watch somebody do it <laughs> and, uh, and then your G suit, it goes probably from like your just above your belly button all the way down to your ankles. And when you pull back on the stick or you increase back pressure, it opens up a valve and lets air into that suit and you end up looking like kind of like a, 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 a fat version of yourself.
0: <laughs> Little Michelin man.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Michelin man. I didn't know if you, if that analogy would work. <laughs>
0: so... <laughs> a, let's have a think so the T-6 was your first one and and did it have guns on and stuff like that it, 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 do you, what sort of training did you do was it like fighter training where you're you're chasing the the instructor about and uh, doing sort of all these manoeuvres that the fighter jets do I guess or, or was it just um aerobatics and just getting to feel what the aircraft can do. Was it, was it a, a combat aircraft is what I'm trying to say.
1: So there, there, um, there are versions of that aircraft that do have um, capabilities of, of carrying weapons and stuff like that. The ones that I was flying, they were just strictly to learn how to take off and land, how to fly in the weather, how to shoot you know, an instrument landing system and bring the aircraft back to the ground. To do aerobatics, and then there was formation flying. So we would fly in formation with other aircraft, you know, um, pretty close to each other, um, doing aerobatic maneuvers. As well as um, they taught us how to land in formation and how to take off in formation. Um, and then it was a single seat airplane. or It was a single engine airplane, rather. And so they would they would practice, you know, doing engine out landings. So they would, you know, cut the power and. And you had to figure out how to land the aircraft, um, without engine power. Um, so that was, that was, um, pretty challenging to learn. However, just prior to starting that there was a break, um, before I started flying the T six. So my buddy and I actually went to a, a civilian airfield and we, we got our glider pilot licenses. So we, we had, we had a little bit of experience, um, flying airplanes, uh, in a uh, no engine state. And I, I can only imagine that's help, that helped me a little bit uh, mm. in pilot training to, to fly a glider around. Now, granted, there's the, the flight characteristics are quite a bit different, but um, the concepts are the same. You're eventually gonna come down. Yeah. And then after the then, T6 was the, so there was, no, there was no bombs or guns or anything on that, but the T38, um, it is a twin engine jet, supersonic, jet trainer and there are I don't know if they ever had real live weapons on them. I think at some point they they were able to maybe drop little practice bombs from the wings. Um don't quote me on that. But then they do have they did have limited uh computer simulation capabilities so you could fly them uh in that capacity. But when you when you first start you're just learning how to take off and land, fly in formation um, you know, go from one airfield to another safely and bring the jet back home. And it's not until you, you get through what, what would be called undergraduate pilot training, which is the T six training followed by the next chunk of training. So if you're going to go fly helicopters, you're going to go fly helicopters. If you're going to go fly, uh, you know, bigger airplane transport style airplane, they would fly a different aircraft. And then if you go the fighter track, like I was on, you would fly the T-38. And so that kind of puts you on a track to go through the next school, which is called Introduction to Fighter Fundamentals. And that's where you learn how to, you learn the very basics of, of dog fighting and, and those types of concepts, right? And then from there, you go to your, you, you get picked to fly a certain type of aircraft, right? So you, you can put your requests in, but it also depends on how well you did in the class. So you're competing again and then your next base after that is essentially the base where you learn how to fly a fighter jet for the first time. And that's, that's where I am teaching right now. So Mm -hmm. the students, by the time they get to us to learn how to fly a fighter jet for the first time, they've gone through many years of training to even get to us on day one. Mm -hmm. Um, And very rarely do we get students that are not just absolutely completely excited to be there and you know because they've worked so long a lot of them it's been a childhood dream like it was for me and you know so they're they're pretty jazzed to be there
0: hmm. so question i got then is when in that stage of are traded in the military do you pick up your handle slice?
1: Oh, so I had gone through all of the training. We talked about undergraduate fighter pilot training, take that back undergraduate pilot training. And then I went through introduction to fighter fundamentals. And then I went through, um, F 16 basic training. And then after that, I went to my first combat unit and in your first combat unit, um, Tim, you can probably attest to this because you you have a, a soldier's background, right? You come up with uh, nicknames for each other, right? Or a handle or, yeah. or a call sign or whatever you want to call it. Um, we, for the most part, uh, the Air Force, at least the U.S. Air Force, calls it a call sign. Um, so my call sign ends up being sliced. Well, that, that usually isn't... Well, one, you don't get to pick your own call sign, right? And it's not any fun. So your peers... <laughs> Superiors get to uh, name you, and usually it's because you did something stupid. Um, mm-hmm. I had at this point, which which is not completely uncommon, but I had uh, been called a lot of things, in some not very nice up to this point, right? But I hadn't really been named by a, a fighter squadron. So I had I had names and call signs and stuff growing up, you know, playing baseball, uh, what have you, and even being a, a young Air Force pilot but this was the the first one. So we, uh, the I'm, I'm young, I'm learning how to, um, do some pretty, uh, heavy G, uh, dog fighting, uh, type maneuvers, right? So if you can imagine I'm, I'm fighting my instructor pilot on that day. And the goal is once you pass really close to each other, it's fights on. And the first person to shoot and, and have a valid kill on the other aircraft. It's simulated. Um, of course, uh, that's the person that wins the the engagement or wins the fight. So mm. we had done a number of engagements that day. we had even gotten gas and taken off again and, and, and we're flying for a second time. So I had been feeling pretty, pretty good about how it was going. Um, was I doing excellent? No, but I, I was comfortable with, with the repetitions and we, were uh, the fight that day was the last set that we were doing was going pretty vertical, uh, straight up. And I was pointing at the instructor's aircraft for too long and I broke what we call training rules. Um, so I had, I, had, I had broken a couple of training rules that are, sub- are there to keep you safe to prevent what was about to happen. And um, what ended up happening was that we passed very close to each other. Um, so close that, you know, if, if anything had been a little bit more off, there's a good chance that we would have crashed into each other. And so um, I was in a Japanese fighter squadron at that point. or a, um, I was stationed in Japan, rather, in a U.S. fighter squadron. And the squadron was called the, um, the Samurai. And so they said that I tried to slice my uh, instructor in half.
0: <laughs> Um,
1: and it kind of fit with the squadron that we were in because we were the the fighting Samurai um, so that mm-hmm. was that's where uh, I got my handle or my call sign slice uh, from <laughs> and I haven't actually met any other fighter pilots in the in the world really, um, because I've been all over the world uh, I haven't met any fighter pilots that are named slice, so it's it's a pretty um, unique call sign um, Ooh, I didn't yeah. really think of it initially just based on the story but that's that's part of uh part of making mistakes and and learning you know from your path
0: <laughs> so, so it could have been worse you could have been called goose or maverick yeah or i <laughs> could have Man. been <laughs> yeah yeah i guess it, there isn't a too much room for error yeah uh, when you're doing silly things like that yeah i must say um the military in my career has put me off flying. I can't I I, I hate flying basically. Yeah. They they have this habit of putting you on aircraft that somebody's trying to shoot out the sky. Yeah. And when they're trying to do that, they're throwing the thing all over the all yeah. over the sky you know, and you know you're getting bounced around inside, whether it be on a helicopter or whether it'd be on a, a Hercules or a C seventeen, they're throwing a thing around the yeah. sky. It just takes the fun out of it for yeah. me. <laughs> and, and then then had this silly idea of, of wanting you to get out at 800 feet. That takes the fun out of the game as well. I mean, yeah. it's going to land anyway, so you might as well stay on it. <laughs> yeah. So Why would you jump out yeah. of a perfectly good aircraft? Precisely. Why yeah. would you do that? So... <laughs> Top gun. Sure. Mirabar, the fighter school. Yeah. Is it a real thing? Is it yep. is it is it it is. It is, yeah. So
1: the, the Navy and the Marine Corps uh, are the other two services other than the Air Force in the United States that fly fighter jets. And mm. that the the top gun school is is the Navy and Marine Corps uh, top Gun School, for for lack of a better term, right? So that's where they go. Yeah. That's where the the weapons officers is is what they're. It's really it's called weapons officer school, right? Um, yeah. But that's where their 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 top instructors go to be instructors of instructors. The Air Force we have what we just call weapons school, um, and it's the same thing, right? So if you're in the Navy or Marine Corps, you to go, you go to um, top gun or weapons school. And if you're in the air force, we just mm. we call it weapons school, but we don't have a movie. So we call it, we call it weapons. School. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a Very real thing. And when you graduate from that program, um, you get what's called a patch. So it's a, pa- um, uh, a patch that you wear on your, your flight suit. And it's, um, very specific to that school that you went to. And it's a, it's a pretty distinguished patch to, to wear because not very many mm. guys get um, selected to go, and then you know not everybody graduates. So um yeah, yeah, it's a. It's
0: like the uh, the um what's it? The high altitude. Um, yes. aircraft. The yeah, aircraft. Yeah, I mean the astronaut ones don't. astronauts, but yeah. but the, the surveillance aircraft that goes really really sort of high. <laughs>
1: yeah and there's there's also test pilot school that is um, you know if you if you go to weapons school or top gun school it's more about the tactics and going to war, whereas there's mm. also a very uh, prestigious school that you can go to and you become a test pilot, which is usually i wouldn't say always, but I would say most of the time a prerequisite to be an astronaut and so mm. and but if you go to test pilot school it's much more Yes, you will be flying a lot of different aircraft, um, but it's much more academic in nature um, from from what I know, right? Because I haven't been to either one of these mm. two schools. Uh, and I'm too old to uh, get selected or go to them now.
0: Um, well, yeah. Maverick went in there at 60. <laughs> Maverick? <laughs> he got was, called back. Maverick got <laughs> called back, but he
1: was already a, a Top Gun graduate and a Top Gun instructor. All right. That's why yeah, they can call them back to at sixty on the program. Gotcha. So, yeah, it's a it's a it's a real school. Um, mm. Yeah, it's the real deal.
0: So, bring us up to date. Then, how did you get to doing what you're doing now, and what are you doing now?
1: So, a um, couple different things. I, you know, I had um, requested to either transition to a different fighter jet, the F 35, or come here to, um, Phoenix, Arizona, and teach in the schoolhouse here in the F 16, just cause I thought it'd be a cool assignment. My, uh, you know, we, my wife and I really like the warm weather and we kind of just wanted to get back this way. So we ended up getting this assignment and, uh, we had just, we kind of fell in love with it and I'm, I'm actually a reserve, a reservist. Um, but mm-hmm. I still get to fly and teach in the schoolhouse, um, which is what I love doing. And that kind of opened the door for, for you know, to start a business. Um, I have a, uh, if you're familiar with like apartments or multifamily real estate, we buy kind of distressed real estate and, and fix it up and then rent it out. We have you know, a business doing that. And then, as you can see here on my shirt, single seat mindset, that was another business that I started about uh, two or three years ago. And the intent was to just g- give back, right? In in a lot of different ways. And so this this is a business. Single seat mindset is a business. Wow. However, we give all the money to a children's cancer nonprofit. So um, it kind of allowed us to to root our purpose in something other than money, right? Because you can get wrapped up just accumulating yeah. more real estate and more of this and a new car and like and you you just get wrapped up trying to grab more and you, you forget to enjoy what's right in your face. So with this business, I, I, I just kind of was like, you know, we're going to, we're going to give back in the form of many different forms. Um, and single seat mindset started with, um, a class of students that was going through was struggling and it was during COVID when everybody was locked mm. down, the schedules were really weird. And, and fighter pilots, we do a lot of instruction, in, in very like personal settings, right. Where we, mm-hmm. we get together and we, we, we share lessons learned. I'm sure it's the same in a lot of very tight knit military situations. And I would say even civilian, you know, uh, like I played a lot of baseball and when we played baseball, we were always together and always sharing lessons learned and mm-hmm. trying to become better players. So it's, it was very similar so that these students were struggling. And what started as a, a short email message from me once a week that, they could read in two minutes or less and it was more just my failures that I had experienced throughout my career, like all the things that I had done that I wish I could have done better. So it was just, it was just lessons. And I was, and and it really connected with the students because um, it made them feel like it, that they, their failures is, is okay. And it's, it's just an event and they can, it's, it's not them, mm-hmm. the person, it's just the event that happens and it's part of learning and to just get, get back going again. Well, We leverage that into a blog and then a website, singleseatmindset.com, and then into a bunch of different avenues. And I think the coolest thing for those people watching and even not is this book called Single Seat Wisdom. Um, It's a series of books, and it's essentially 20 uh, individual stories from a different fighter pilot with a, a little chunk of wisdom at the end of each chapter. So, you know, young, young dudes, or even I've gotten feedback from business owners and entrepreneurs and um, guys flying through the airlines. Um, a helicopter pilot reached out to me not long ago. Um, but people can, can pick up the book and mm-hmm. there's 20 different perspectives, all written from fighter pilots and every single chapter is different. Right. And so we have, we have that book and then you know, volume two is getting ready to be published here at the end of uh, 2022. And it's just kind of grown grown out from there. And that is kind of what has brought us to this point is, you know, we kind of exploded uh, when I told people that like, hey, we're we're helping charity, but we also want to give, give our lessons learned back to the next generation, back to the generation right now that's sitting in front of our face. And how do we do that? Well, one of the ways is through all these different Platforms uh, for people to learn and and move forward.
0: Brilliant. So that brings us right up to date, then. Yeah. So that's that's what you're about. Yeah, uh, helping other people, still doing some flying, chucking around the skies in a F16. Yep. So when was the F- F111? That was prior, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, that was in the because same used to... uh, as the uh you know the F4, the A4 um it was it was before the F117. You know the F100 series aircraft were kind of all back in that mm. that time frame. Uh Viet, yeah. Vietnam ish time frame.
0: Yeah. Well yeah. we used to have um uh where where I used to live um we had F111s used to f- okay. we were right a flight path for... Uh, a place called um, Upper Hayford in England. Okay. And uh, the the F, F-111s were based there and they're coming over the house all times and day and night. And um, we heard them taking off, actually, uh, and heard the following day that they'd bombed Baghdad the first time round. So... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they'd been down there and uh, beat up Baghdad. Baghdad so, and that was uh, out of Upper Hayford. Okay. Such a long time ago now.
1: <laughs> yep. I spent some time over Baghdad myself.
0: Mm. Yeah, I went to Baghdad. and I was there for, for three days and they tried to kill me every day. I thought it was a very unfriendly place. <laughs>
1: I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I saw it from, uh, from a different perspective.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I also did three tours of Afghanistan. Which I absolutely loved. Really? Yeah, I loved it. Yeah, it's a wonderful place, Afghanistan. Uh. I'm just really, really sorry that it's gone away. It has. Yeah. I mean, I was I was in Kabul in 2002 uh, and had a great time there, I was cutting around the city, and then I did two tours of Helmand. Uh. Yes, it was a bit dodgy, um, and I nearly did come back a few times, but the it's just a fascinating country. The yep. people, um, for instance, I mean, to, to get to know them, they are hospitable, nice people. It's just uh, the situation down there. It's a, uh, it's all gone tong, should yep. we say? Yep, but that's about it, grid. And mine. Yeah. <laughs> so Dom, thank you so much for sharing your story. That's been fascinating.
1: Yeah. Thanks for, uh, thanks for talking to me, Tim. I don't know if I've, uh, trying to think if I've, if I've talked to somebody, you're in the UK, right? Yeah. 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 I think the closest I've been is maybe I talked to somebody recently in the Netherlands. So you're the, you're the first, uh, the first in the UK. So this is cool. (laughs) Number one. Number one. Numero uno. Yep. Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate you.
0: You're welcome. The Tim Hill Podcasts Ordinary People's Extraordinary Stories. Welcome to the Tim Hill Podcast. If you have the time, You can not only listen to the episodes, but you can also watch all the shows and you'll find the links in the description below. Thank you.